this thing. What's wrong with this thing? I think it's busted. Busted. Ladies, gentlemen, those beyond the binary, poets, perverts, explorers of all kinds, welcome to Busted Mouth on Q4 Radio every single Monday from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m., 1680 a.m. in Chicago, streaming around the world at Q4.org, as well as Apple Radio, the TuneIn app. Uh, all you got to do is search Q4, that's Q-U-E-4, Q-U-E-4. Shots! Uh, I'm J.W. Basillo, as per usual. How you doing? How you doing? You hanging in? Your, uh, your boy is, is dragging ass a little bit today. Dragging ass! Uh, as the king used to say, it's it's been a long, long, long weekend. Uh, not for all the fun reasons, though. I, I did get a chance to catch up on a little live music, so it's not a total loss. Um, oh, I also had a sit down with the founder and uh, the board president of Q4 Media last night, and there's some cool stuff on the horizon here in this building that I can't entirely fill you in on. Though, um, if you're streaming via the live site today, you uh, you might have noticed some slick new changes to the website, so that's pretty exciting. Check it, take a look around, poke around a little bit, even if you're not streaming from there or if you're listening via pod- podcast, go check it out, qe4.org, shots, uh, and uh, poke around a little bit, see all the cool stuff we got going on, uh, and it's going to continue to uh, expand. So I'm 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 excited about it, you know, uh, where the organization's going, and, and I, I might have uh, some more of my fingerprints on things in the future. Stay tuned for those updates as we continue to go. Uh, what else? It's uh, I did not catch the Grammys last night. I know this is we are a, a music centric show in a lot of ways, but I I didn't catch the Grammys because I'm not sure if I have ever caught the Grammys. But uh, I did check out the results. And big shout out to Childish Gambino for uh, taking home some trophies for This Is America. It was the first rap song I'm told to win both Record of the Year and Song of the Year. Uh, at the same time. The coolest part, though, is that he didn't even show up to accept the awards. I see you, Donald, and I appreciate that kind of thing. Um, I don't know most of the new artist nominees. I'm looking at this list. I have no idea. I haven't heard the bulk of the nominees in, in any category, if we're being really honest. Uh, does that make me a bad music fan? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it does. Uh, apparently, Casey Musgraves won Album of the Year, uh, which I guess happened. And I I, I'm, I know of Casey Musgraves, so I, I, looked, I looked up uh, that album, and it's not terrible it's it's fine it's just it's a pop country album it's a it's a it's like a it's a brandy carlisle album without any stakes it's uh it's you know it's like hey if david gray won album of the year you'd be like i don't i don't understand what's going on but apparently she beat out uh dirty computer from janelle monet which is interesting and she beat out brandy carlisle uh who is the better version of her and also she beat out post malone who was nominated for album of the year i just want to repeat that for those of you listening at home post malone post malone austin post was nominated for album of the year yep uh, i don't get it but but hey what do i know i've been i've been on the island and i've been uh, on the moon and all i found were these sunken eyes and a brand new set of tunes i'm gonna play them just for you in just a second uh, <laughs> right before we bring our guest in i don't know i'm rhyming today what's happening um direct from planet new york today actor writer activist shannon mateski is going to be in the building in the one o'clock hour i'm looking forward to uh to seeing old shay who i haven't seen in a minute uh but's in town and I, I immediately i saw i saw uh shannon was in town and immediately was like come on the show and i was able to cajole her in so that's exciting looking forward to talking to her uh, i think you are going to be super digging her and uh right now i don't know what do you think it's getting started it's a monday it's noon you're at work you're doing what you're doing uh let's rattle the windows a little bit with with my girl uh margaret glassby all tonight I've been a little too turned on to talk about us Tomorrow I'll be too turned off and on 
Streaming live around the world, Q4.org, Q-U-E-4.org. Shots uh, broadcasting 1680 AM in Chicago as well. J.W. Basillo is your host. I've said it is your host. Did I just say is your host on my own show? What a jamoke. Uh, weirdness. All kinds of things are happening. Listen to the rock and roll. I got an old friend with me today who uh, agreed to do it that I, I kind of poached. was like, oh, you're in town. Now you have to do my show. And she almost forgot. And, but was telling me a story. And it's cool. I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> We're here. Uh, welcome. Uh, it, uh, Shannon is, a, is a, an actor and a poet and a director and um, a producer and uh, makes probably dope fries or something. I don't know. Does all kinds of stuff. Uh, direct in from Planet New York. Shannon Mateski, everybody. Hi, Shannon. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. A little embarrassed that you just snitched on me. No, but... that's that's how the show works. <laughs> that's how we do. It's, I should have expected it. It gets real around here. We snitch on each other. We that's talk real. about each other. Um so you're, what are you doing in town? Um, I am here for the month of February to audition for pilot season. Ooh. Yeah. Anything in particular you're going after? Everything. I mean, um, do you have the audition set up or your agency set up? No. So the kind of the way it works is, you know, pilots come down the, come down the pipeline in a sense and the agents get them and they try to get their talent into the new show. And if you do get into the new show and shoot the pilot, the pilot still cannot get picked up by a network, blah, blah, blah. So it's really just a crapshoot for artists. Sure. Um, but pilot season lasts from about December to March in the major cities, Chicago, New York, and L.A., and I don't have an agent in New York because for I've been there two and a half years, and for my first two years I was doing nonprofit, so like no one knows me for real. Right. Um, and I came back out here in the summer, and my agent was like, "If you come, I will work with you." And I was like, "Okay, great." And I'm, there you go. There we go. So I was like, an excuse to go to Chicago. I'm down. And you came in the the just most glorious month of the year. I know. She was like, February. I was like, I'm going to die. This is how much I want to chase my dreams. But you, <laughs> but you, you, I mean, you know about it. Like, you're not new. Exactly. You've been here. You lived here for what? Like, seven years? Eight like years. Eight, man, yeah. I, I know your life. Uh, yeah. Like, eight years. And before that, you're from the Bay Area. Originally. I'm from the Bay Area. Yeah. So, like, everybody's saying that, like, oh, you come during the worst month. But, like, I've survived it. I've lived it. Um, preparing my mind. I just was like, we know what we're going for. And, like, I really don't have anything else out here while I'm doing that mm -hmm. so it really is putting a focus on like you are here for that and you are here to live your life as an actor for this month and it really is a good reprise because like you just you know rattled off all my hyphens and like I don't have to be all of that right now I can just be the actress and that means like do some yoga and like <laughs> you know breathe today and like are you a good person and like that type of work you know that's cool it's I mean fun. that rattling off the hyphens thing is tough because yeah. trying to describe it to to other, like most artists I know are multi hyphenate on some level, right? right? And multi hyphenate is such a, it sounds like 
it's sounds so pretentious as a word. That's right. I hate I hate the term, but yeah. like we need to come up with a better term. But yeah. also, I don't know. Well, I feel like it used to be. Uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but in a more taboo in a sense of like. Oh, don't hyphenate. Just like say your one right. thing. It's easier. But I think in the past few years, we are becoming more comfortable with multiple hyphens. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to like use the ones that I'm actually like applying to my career, and my life. So that like no matter what the hyphens is, it's true. Yeah. Like you can see that there's proof of it in what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things. But like I can stand by those things and be like, yeah, I actually do those things. And like here's me doing those things in practice. But it also gets like long winded, you know. Right, right. You're like, I'm this. And it does sound pretentious. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, if I miss one, I don't want people to think I'm a dumb actor either. If I just say sure. I'm an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel that. I, like I started using the term. I just for a long, long time. I was just like writer performer. Yeah. Because it covers so many different right. things. Yeah, I don't really like being called poet because, like, I write poetry, but I'm more of a writer than a poet, right. you know? So, like, similar. Like, we could play rhetoric all day. It's really for other no people's comfortabilities and identities and, you know, identifications and less for you. But you might miss a job if you miss a hyphen. Fair. You know? Yeah. You got to be like, I do do this thing. I Pay also, me. Right. Also, I can direct. Yes. Also, I know how to produce. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, even when people ask for directors, like, I don't have a huge resume under directing, but I do direct. So, when people, like, throw me out, I'm like, you listen. Good job. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, so, is you, so you're just looking right now doing doing the pilot thing. You haven't you haven't done a ton of film, have you? I have not. Um, it's so funny. I was just talking about how I called the SAG office about a residual, and they like busted me out. They were like, "So you haven't done a film project since 2014?" And I was like, "Mind your business. Pay me my <laughs> money." My dad. Yeah, exactly. You don't know me. You're not gonna pay these SAG dues, you know. <laughs> so that was hilarious. So I haven't done film in a minute. Um, but, like, I also always laugh at the question when you say you're an actor and they're like, well, what kind of acting do you do? And I'm like, anything attached to a check. Like, I am degreed <laughs> and I can do all the things, you know. Just because I haven't done it in a minute doesn't mean I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because I have taken different career choices in the past few years. And I love kind of being able to be like, this is why I navigated and did that. But, like, I'm never not going to be an actress. Like, I also went to acting school specifically for that, to be like, I'm degreed to never not be an actress. I will always be an actress. You know, I could always kick your butt in Shakespeare and let's go. So remind me again where you went to school. DePaul Theater School. That's right. That's why you yeah. were here. Yep. Okay. Cause I, yeah, because I met you, I think, right after, like, when you would, shortly after you had moved here, yeah. I think at a workshop or whatever. Yeah. Because I, like, grew up as a poet, so we met, uh, yeah, I think we met at a teaching workshop, I'm pretty sure. That sounds about right. I'm, I'm pretty sure we met at, a, like, a teaching workshop, teaching circle, um, and I have a poet performance background, but I was in theater school. So even making that, that's kind of what I was talking about, like taboo being multi-hyphenated. When I first got here and I was like, I'm a poet actress. And they were like, stop being a poet. Be the actress. Right, right. And I was like, huh, okay. But then when I graduated, it actually really served me to be multi-hyphenated. So like, I ended up with a lot of jobs and a lot of my actor friends didn't because they were waiting on jobs. And I was like, well, I'm an educator. I'm a poet. I'm a this. I'm a that. I'm a writer. I can do all these things and write your curriculum and what's up, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, I feel like I got a lot of respect for that. And like, um, it really helped me just like pay my bills, you know, to own up to all the talents that I have. I think we were talking about this. I think Malik and I were talking about this last week and we talked about it a bunch. But, like, um, 
uh, just that idea of like finding your lane and what lane you're playing in. Yeah. Uh, I've never found it fun to just be one thing. Yeah. Like, let me just put on the poet hat. Let me put on the director hat or whatever yeah. it is. I've always been like, what can we create that's going to reach as many things that I'm interested in as possible? Yeah. I had a, a few um, kind of life experiences that shook me in feeling more confident in that, too. One of them was while I was in school and I was the office assistant for the head of acting. And it was during a time that two professors were under tenure interviews or whatever that process is, right, going through the tenure process. And I saw their CV packets, mm-hmm. and it was life-changing. To see somebody who I only knew as my voice teacher, only knew as my acting teacher, and then their CV packets included things that they directed, things that they acted in, like things that they wrote, things that they produced. And it was their life body of work. And that's something that really stuck with me. Like, I want to create a lifetime of a body of work. I went to theater school. Again, you can't ever say I'm not an actor. I want to work forever, you know? And it does matter to me. Like, what is my life's work? This is all my life's work. And why not that be full of things and more things? And to say that I've, like, created the whole time, you know? I love that uh, even though I have aims right now to do TV and film, I I have built my career in a way that people are going to be like, oh, I remember when she was producing that show in Brooklyn. I remember when she was my poetry teacher. I met her at the juvenile detention center while Mm -hmm. she was like, you know, like I really want that legacy. I feel like I've aimed to build that. And I feel like just very comfortable in building that. I want people to know me from all these walks of life and then be like, now she's on HBO. Look at you, Fancy. Yeah, that's the the goal. Um, You know, that that's what was the last thing you were working on in Chicago? You were doing was it? Ike's play? What was the last thing you did here? Um, well, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of hard to say because technically I participate every year in the Fly Honey Show, but not necessarily with my physical body, but I write right. for it every year. Oh, okay. I didn't realize um, that. So I'm a part of the inconvenience and a part of the team that throws it and I write for it. So um, that always has a piece of me, whether I'm here or not. Um, that feels really cool. Um, but I feel like, yeah, it's been a I mean, I left Chicago in 2014, and I haven't done any big work here since then. I brought a solo show once. What, um, uh, a few things Say the title there. of the solo show. Well, I have a bunch of them. But oh, the you most do? recent one is pretty fun. Uh, it's called Heartbreak Hotel, Whitney. <laughs> and it's a breakup play using the songs and story of my ex's favorite artist, Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the pettiest theatrical idea I've ever come up with. Um, <laughs> That should be it, the tagline on the poster. It, I mean, well, it's, it's so funny because, like, even saying that little bit of tagline, the company I was working with just, like, doesn't like it. They don't think it's, like, good and classy enough. And I'm like, it's fantastic and hilarious, you know? Like, petty chic is a real thing now. Thank you. Thank Somebody you. Somebody coined that term. I fe- that is so great. Petty chic is a real thing. And yeah. I, like... I the tagline is petty chic to attract people to it, but the content actually shows a lot of reverence and love to the person that the story is about because like theater should be about that. It shouldn't be about dragging people. And like I like that people kind of assume it's about dragging and then it's not. And then they're like, oh, my God, now I'm crying and I have feelings. And I'm like, empathy. Theater did its thing. Take it. Take it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just a fun tagline. It, it, it did start off as a petty idea, but um, throughout the process of the work, I did just kind of come to that epiphany. Like, this can't be about me dragging this person. I don't want it to be about me dragging this person. It's a love story. And it's about how um, when you have an idea of love or career, when you make fantasies about things and then they don't turn out how you expect them, 
Like, what do you do in that demise, you know? And I think it parallels Whitney Houston in her life. And I think that she really built up, you know, her career and her persona of Whitney. And she also was trying her best to be this great wife and was really committed to Bobby throughout thick and thin. And she might have went against what she truly wanted and what her heart truly wanted to just try to maintain this fantasy. And then when her fantasy fell apart, you know, when she lost her husband, when her body fell apart, her voice fell apart, um, you know, we saw her face down in a bathtub. And I think it is heartbreak that really got her there. So my play is about how do you move past that moment of heartbreak and that, like, um, thin line where you're about to give up and you make a different choice. So, yeah. Man. See? That was so good. Empathetic. <laughs> it's amazing. I just said the second row. I was going to make a Whitney Houston joke. And I was like, and then you start, it, as you continued to talk, I was like, I can't. Yeah. Man, Whitney See? Houston is so sad. It's sad. It's so sad. It's a beautiful tragedy. And like the play for me is like, how can we use her and use her legacy to really learn from it? Because it is really tragic to lose someone who like we loved so much, but like, it's hard out here, you know, like having hope and faith is hard. And we see that in so many of the stars that we've lost this year who have taken their own lives in many different mm -hmm. ways. And, you know, the fame and the, the extra pressure on top of that, they're human, too, you know. Um, so I do. I really loved the opportunity of using an icon who we really loved so much to really push us past and beyond the point that, you know, she couldn't push herself past. Um, and what better way to kind of honor her legacy to say that, like, you didn't die for not. You actually, like, taught your girl a few lessons. And That's thank cool. you. What yeah. you, was that? Did you grow up on Whitney Houston? I mean, we all did on some level. Yeah. So, thing? like, that was kind of the thing is, like, it was a big thing for this girlfriend, this ex-girlfriend that okay. the play is about, right? She, like, told me Whitney Houston was her favorite um, artist. And I was like, how can I ruin Whitney Houston for her? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness. And then I thought of the tagline first. And I was like, now I'm going to write this play. It's a brilliant idea. Um but discussing it and, like, listening to Whitney's stories and listening to Whitney's songs, like, I wrote the content because I did have my own connections. Mm -hmm. And I did have similar feelings. And I was like, oh, it is also very much about how media and the songs we grew up on and the movies that we grew up on, they shape those ideas of love for us. And they shape those fantasy ideals for us, yeah, you yeah. know? So I feel like she had a bunch of things that inspired her to stick to this good wife ideal. And, like... Like, I think we have our own ideals. They're like, you know, I'm going to be the knight in shining armor. I'm going to be this and this and that. And then when that fails you and you, like, reach your first heartbreak because of it or, like, you worked really hard to aim to be this thing and then you're like, and I'm a trash person and that's <laughs> not in the movies. You know, like, what do you do? There's no examples for that. It's tough. Like, especially if you grow up living in movies and li listening to pop records and whatever else. Like, you want to be that ideal. You yeah. said it really well. Like, you yeah. really want to be that person. And when you... So for like white dudes over 30, mm -hmm. we had High Fidelity, right? Yeah, So right. When High Fidelity came out in the late 90s, right. all the guys who spent way too much time listening to records, yeah. reading the liner notes, yeah. uh, pining after girls that didn't like them back, <clears throat> me, uh, that was like, that's our movie. That's for us. But I feel like we've got that. I mean, shocking. The white guys have something. Yeah. Uh, but like, I feel like we've got that. But there's, in my experience, or maybe I'm, I'm, I haven't seen it, but like, there's just isn't, isn't enough uh, of that narrative from different cultural perspectives. Yeah, but I think kind of what you're saying, like we pull it from different places, right? Sure. So some of us pull it from music, some of us pull it, pull it from movies and our different genres inside of that. But I feel like everybody kind of does have their own idea. And, and because of that, too, the conversation of 
the music and then the movies are giving us toxic ideals. No doubt. Which is like very much what kind of the play is about. Like just as much as Whitney believed in her own or like all of her songs are like about love and like it being successful. And then like even her love wasn't successful. And I was like, how can you sing this crap? You know, like, why did you believe it yourself? And I truly believe that she did and she wanted it. Whether she wrote the songs or not, she like sang and like hoped for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dang, me too. Like we both got got by the same thing. You were making it and I was just a kid listening to it. But like, I really built my own mind being like, things are going to be perfect. And like, it's not true all the time. Like they give us these toxic things versus like the real, real, you know? So do you think we write the, do we write the best versions of ourselves or the, the ideal versions of ourselves? Or, I mean, obviously it's, it's over romantic. It's romanticized for the I sake think of the art. a mix. Art. Totally. Yeah. I think totally a mix of it because I mean, entertainment is entertainment. Mm-hmm. We do, we are attracted to a bit of the fantasy. Yeah. You know, whether it's Rihanna throwing money and we're like, dang, I want to do that with strippers and all the things and just be, you know, doused in jewelry or like, I want to be Tupac in the tub and like, yeah, I want to have a pool party all the time. Like these things sound and seem great. And yeah, like I think they truly influence how we behave and then we have to reflect back like, actually, that was really like awful or that's not really serving us, you know. But even those like silly ass tropes of um, running through the airport to stop somebody. First of all, you can't do it anymore because TSA. Thanks, 90s. But like running through the airport to stop somebody, all that kind of stuff. um, Everyone goes, oh, it's so romantic. But nobody wants to get chased through an airport. Right. Like on a real thing. Nobody, right. Nobody's interested in yeah, that. Yeah, when you think about the reality of things, you're like, mm, okay, in real life, no. But again, fantasy. And that's what TV sure. does. But I think we then all have issues separating reality and fantasy. And especially if you're the artist that is like, like paid and built to create it. You know, Mm -hmm. like listening to Gaga talk about like dichotomies of the culture and fame and listening to so many people talk about the dichotomies of fame. Like you have to remember it's an entertainment industry. And then what need are we supplying? We are supplying a need of folks escapism or relatability to know that they're not alone. And like that is um, just very subjective because folks are going through all kinds of things and there's all kind of perspectives and point of views and the artist's job is to like just give you a window into like that feeling you know yeah so do you feel like it, it's falling down i mean because that because we're creating this ideal and we are selling entertainment mm-hmm. but you're also trying to present the best version of yourself etc etc cetera, et cetera. Right. instagram like, like- it's but it's weird. But on Instagram is a weird thing because mm-hmm. we want to see celebrities. We want to see the artists that we like. Yeah. We want to see them being people. Like we want to see Frank Ocean at an In and Out. Everyone's right. like, oh look, right. he eats burgers too. Yeah. We're on that. But also, we also kind of I think on some level don't we we don't want that. Like we want them to somehow we want people the artists that we look up to. We want them to be somehow more noble and bigger and smarter than we are. Totally. Um, and. But that's the ideal, right? And then I think you end up with the Whitney Houston where, like, you yeah. put somebody on a platform and then they have to run into the tragedy of their own humanity, you know? Of yeah. Like, it's not that easy. And I feel like I feel like that's something I bring to the honesty of my work when I write is I write like an everyman. That's one of the other reasons I don't say that I'm a poet is because I'm not super studied. I'm not, like, sure. super metaphorical. I'm like... Life is real, but here's like a way to get through it. Here's how I get through it. And um, I people people think all kinds of things about me because I do. I am ambitious, and I do a bunch of shows and blah blah blah. And they're like, "She's a big personality. She's a da 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 da." And then when I do shows like solo shows, and they're full of honesty, 
I'm like, yo, but that's nuanced. Like, in order to be that big yeah. person, like, I also have to deal with the same things, heartbreak and blah, 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 blah. So I feel like just that's the power of art and, and using those opportunities and those platforms to kind of speak to the humanity of it is just as strong of the fantasy. So, like, I can give you the fantasy in an hour and a half, but also have that nugget of truth in there, too. Word. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you this question. Go ahead. First record you bought with your own money. Ooh. I don't know, own money-wise. Um, honestly, it might have been Spice Girls. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like when I ask people this question, it's never like the first album you had. Yeah. Right? It's always like, what was the one that right. you went, I've got 10 bucks. I'm yeah. going to the Kmart. I got a cassette or whatever it is. I'm old. I really but- want to say that it was maybe Spice Girls. Honestly, random. But yeah. I think it was Kelly Price, Soul of a Woman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so random, but the first like album I was given, yeah. uh, my foster mother gave me um, TLC's um, uh, Crazy, dang, Sexy cool. Crazy Sexy Cool, and she also gave me Salt and Pepper's album. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had these like powerful women. Okay, um, and then like I feel like that also was an era of like super soulful women. So yeah, I don't know if I bought like. Miseducation of Lauren Hill or like Kelly Price, but I bought one of them black girls singing the blues, you know, right. telling me what's up, <laughs> and I thought I knew something. So, yeah, uh, probably one of them. Okay, all right. Uh, so, you, just because you, you touched on it, I'm curious. So, what was what was it like growing up in your house? I mean, Man. I, I know you, you have kind of a non traditional youth upbringing of sorts. I do, and I think it serves me as an adult in a, such a strange way. Sure. Um, So I grew up in a foster adopted home. I went into foster care at five with my younger brother, and we were adopted when I was about nine. Um, And we stayed there. We grew up in this home. So pretty much I've been in the same family since I was five. Mm -hmm. Um, But my foster mother isn't the nicest lady. She is really nice and knows how to work with young kids. Um, But once you start kind of developing your own point of view, Um, it's really hard for her. Pretty much, like, she is a foster parent who really had the best intentions in mind, but really hadn't done the study about child development. That, like, kids aren't going to stay kids. They're going to turn up and become adults and, like, humans and thinking people. And to be super just fair to her development, she wasn't a super social person. Mm -hmm. So um, acquiring kids and being very good at taking care of kids was kind of like her social um, currency. And then we grew out of being cute kids that you could just dress up and, like, keep quiet. And we became, like, vocal. And Mm -hmm. for me, like, I just started developing my voice. And I came into my queerness pretty early. And I also grew up in the Bay Area. Um, And when I got to Chicago, I remember making a comment about, like, how whack – the gay pride parade was here and someone was like you're from the gay capital of the world what do you expect and i was like oh perspective yeah like i did grow up in a more liberal type environment i also grew up in south berkeley so like berkeley you know super hippie background um oakland um where the black panthers started we have a lot of um uh, ethnic education that are that's inside the high schools um that so you learn about so many different cultures and i've learned as i've taught in chicago and new york and just around the country that like every kid isn't exposed to all that so i feel like i was exposed to a bunch of different like cultural outlets um outside of the home and that really like expanded my worldview. Um, also being the oldest child of my foster mothers, 
I kind of reaped the good years. Um, we were poor, but we got poorer. She lost her job when I like got into high school and never like worked traditionally again, which was a huge life change for us. But I had the glory years. So I got to go to like the great like summer programs and um, poetry was a good thing for me. That was like my personal outlet. And it gave me opportunities to travel and meet kids from across the world. So my worldview is like huge. I was like 16, 17 meeting people from across the nation. And my little brothers and sisters didn't have that. Um, so I was adopted by this family, and then she also adopted three other children, so I'm the eldest of five children. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, and when she traditionally stopped working, um, she just became a child caregiver and had a daycare in the home. So we not only have five kids, but we also had about 15 daycare kids at all yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like the second mom. Um, and yeah, poetry was my outlet. She didn't really like that I was doing poetry again because I started developing my own voice. She was like, it's too much like hip hop. And she would always uh, be like, you're cussing too much. And you know, the self-expression sure. that it provides for you. She wasn't ready for what I had to say. And the fact that I was saying, you know, yeah. um, it was a very silencing type household for control. Again, trying to like not know what to do with the vocal young person. So her technique was like, how can I silence you? And I was very silent in the home, but it just made me louder in the rest of the world. So Mateski was your adopted last name? No, Mateski no. is my uh, birth certificate last name. I won't say biological because um, my biological story is a mess. Uh, Mama was a Rolling Stone. Uh -huh. So there's always been debate. I have... Um, two biological older brothers who are twins and a biological younger brother who I was in foster care with and I'm the middle child. I always look different. I have the light color eyes. I have a body that's different than theirs and we found out we all have different fathers. They know their fathers and uh -huh. mine was always a question. Okay. So later in life, kind of long story short, um, I found out that I have the name of the man that my mother was seeing at the time of my birth but his High school best friend is actually my biological father. That's wild. Yeah. That's hella crazy. wild. It's I mean, I knew it was kind of, I said hella, just for you. Yeah. Uh, I, I knew it's, uh, I knew it was, was kind of a, a, a thick story, if you will, but I didn't, yeah. I don't, I didn't know all the details of it. I mean, there's some juicy ones and I'm trying to like figure out how to, everyone's always been like, tell your story, but trying to figure out what method is right. best to tell my story. It also was uh, uh, unraveling really until recently. So when I left Chicago in 2014, I took a job back home. So this was a few, it accomplished a few different shifts. I changed from predominantly being a performer educator to getting offered a producerial job at a nonprofit. And that nonprofit was back home. Now I had been living in Chicago at this point for eight years and like barely been back home because of the relationship with my foster mother wasn't tight. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, once I kind of went off to college at 18, I was like, I'm going to go be the person I need to be in the world and like leave this behind. And if that's what I got to do to focus, I'm going to do that. But I have siblings that miss me and felt like I abandoned them. And then this job offer came and like talking to my therapist, I was really conflicted about it. And the person I was dating at the time was like, don't do it. It's a diversion from your dream. You don't need like a regular job. 
Yeah. But that's hard, right? Because, yeah. like, we survive under artist incomes and, you know, healthcare is tempting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really tempted by it. And then my therapist was like, do you really need this job? And I was like, no, but, like, financial security would be great and da 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 And she was like, well, you know, if you're going to go back towards where your family is and that's going to be traumatic, you might as well get paid for it. No doubt. So I was like, all right, two for one. So when I went back, um, it was good family time. It was hard, definitely, definitely hard. But I got to connect to some of my siblings who were closer to the age out age, like 17, 18. So in the same way that I got to go off and go to college and develop who I was, I was trying to prune them to get ready for that as well. Um, And then I also could just like physically be there. My brother, my younger brother had two kids. So I got to be auntie, which was really dope. But my brother, he is really interested in his adopted journey. Um, Also, that's something that I really, really value Every adopted child goes through their own kind of relationship with the search and when and how that manifests. And for my siblings, um, because of the silencing and the control of my foster mother, she controls a lot until you're 18. And each time one of them ages out, I connect with them and I say, okay, well, what do you need for your, like, rites of passage almost? Like, what do you need at this point in your search? And for my little brother, he wanted to connect with our biological family. He wanted to connect with our biological brothers who we had lost contact with, and he really pushed for it. Um, So my time there spent... Um, I did get to connect with them. They each have a child, so I'm like Auntie with your, Supreme. With your brothers. Yeah, with my gotcha, older okay. two brothers. I also met um, a lot of my aunts, like re-met since childhood, and a lot of my cousins, and was kind of piecing together memories. My brother has very little memory because he was only one when we were separated from our parent, but um, I was five, so I have a lot of traumatic memories sure. and was able to really connect. So it was hard for me um, because I don't have as much as the adoption fantasy, which is like, if I connect with my birth family, it's going to be great and perfect. I'm like, no, I actually know it's not because like I know that they're messed up, too. But my brother really held on to that. But this is what he wanted for his rites of passage. So I really had to be brave. So like I connected and saw them. Um, one really powerful thing that he did, my birth mother died when I was in foster care. Um, so she has been in, in lieu of all these questions, the last name, the, who's my daddy, the, how did this happen? She's not a resource to ask. Right, right, right. And because the other family is so kind of tarnished in their own drama, trauma, all the things, they're not great resources. Like the legend is like everybody in my family has been like involved in drugs or jail. So like, they're not super (laughs) reliable, you know, it's like that. But, um, my birth mother has a identi- has a twin and my little brother was like we got to see her too that's why yeah and for me i was like as much as it's scary as hell i got to see her too you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. what's the older version of them and us look like and when people met me too it was wild cuz everyone was like you're short like your mom and i was like hearing all these things like about her that i had questioned or been curious about in my own journey um And here was some, like, answers being solved. So we met her, and it's, again, drugs are in jail. She was, like, in her late 50s and still on the streets of San Francisco. 
And um, it was really hard, too, because I worked in San Francisco while I was there for this producer job, um, really blocks away from the Tenderloin District, which is heavily predominant with drugs and Mm -hmm. mental illness. And that's where I was homeless with my birth mother. So some of those like early memories. And here is my mom's twin, like still out on the streets. But we got to see her. And then three months later, she passed away. And I was like. But dang, thanks, little bro, because if you didn't push me, then I would have missed these opportunities. So it was just prime time to kind of lay some skeletons to rest and to give it a shot because, like, these are stories we can't replace, right? Yeah. And if I am a storyteller, if I'm a writer and I write a lot of autobiographical and solo performance, like, these are stories I want to talk about. I want to be an advocate for foster and adopted children and kind of talk about the many different journeys that we can have, you know? Um, so I had to live it to do it. I had to be brave enough to live it to do it. And then I went on this crazy adventure. Um, I like put it on Instagram, um, I feel like, and Twitter, and called it hashtag finding pops. And when I had that meeting with my like aunts and cousins and stuff, they were like, oh, yeah, your birth dad's still alive. Like not Metesky, the other one, the like actual dad. And I was like, but I've never met this dude. And a big thing um, that has plagued my life, if anybody knows me and sees me, um, I'm light skinned as hell. Um, I'm like black and culturally black, but I don't know what my ethnicity is. Sure. So the question too is like, well, what race are these dudes? You know, like, what am I? Yeah. Um, and like you hear the name Mateski and like, that's a, uh, a Russian Polish name. Like that's, that's like, that has a wild story. And I've like connected with that family. And like, I had this race crisis a few years ago. I was like, am I white? Am I all white? What? Like (laughs) this is, I've been living a lie. And then this family is like, no, you're not white. You actually have a biracial father and he's still alive. And he's somewhere in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And I'm like, I work in San Francisco. What? What? So mind blown. So I went on this adventure finding pops. And um, one of my aunties was like, just go ask around. So I went and I asked all these like wild people in San Francisco if they knew this man. How did you not document this? I mean, like, how is this not a documentary? You know what I'm saying? I know. How did you miss this opportunity? I know. I did in a wild way, but like, you also can't bring cameras to the tenderloin. I get that. Do you know how many times people were like, so are you the police? Because, like, I'm cleaned up. Like, I've been to college. I'm, like, you know, I'm doing oh, decent for myself. I, sure, I don't, sure, sure. I don't look like I belong in the Tenderloin. Right. So folks are like, who you asking? Who are you? You know, it was wild. So all I could do is, like, really tweet about it and tweet about my feelings. Um, so I didn't find him on the few times I did these, like, finding Pops journeys. But I did document and write, like, what it felt like trying to find a reflection of myself and the people that I saw in San Francisco. And that was wild within itself. Um, And, like, so all the family shit and the searching and and things like that. um, I mean, I drank a lot while I was in San Francisco. (laughs) And, you know, weed and everything is is recreational. And I'm like, thanks, I need it. Because it was stressful. But, again, like, why didn't I document it? Like, I did in my own way. And I had to because, yeah, it's a crazy story. Sure, sure. Yeah, so is is your birth mother, is your birth mother black? My birth mother's white. Your birth mother's white, your yeah. fa- and then your birth father is biracial. My birth father is biracial. And that house you grew up in, your foster mother is white? My foster mother is black. Black. Well, so okay. I grew up in a black family. 
Right. Culturally grew, black. That I'm don't culturally make sense. black. Okay. Um, yeah. All I know is black things. But I mean, I'm super light skinned. So right. everyone's like, you're black, but you're the white cousin. Like, how are you the whitest? And your name's Shannon Mateski. And my which name is, is Shannon Mateski, which is the name. whitest name, which really <laughs> has benefited me for every audition in my life. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so I'm super grateful for those things. And even when talking to my biological brothers, they were like, well, Michael Mateski is not your dad. Change your name. And I was like, no, I've actually made a name for myself. Right. And it was wild because I connected with this this Metesky person before anything. And he was in prison at the time. And um, one of the family members gave me his information and he started writing me letters from prison. And he wrote like, while you were born, it was a Mari situation. We didn't know who the father was, you know. So I'm getting all these stories from all these. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to figure out how do I put it all in a place wild it's wild because there's got to be a place for there's it right? there's got to be a bigger story it. it's a solo yeah. show it's something, it's, it's, right? it's something or is it a lifetime series like it's so wild mm. and unpacking it has been really crazy and the things that i've heard and said and felt and seen um so well then i'll, I'll kind of tell you kind of this end of the story so uh Birth mother's twin passes away. I meet most of the white side of her family is who's who I met, um, her sisters and things like that. Um, and my brother made sure that I got connected with them. I went on this finding pops journey. And then one day I'm in West Oakland where I was living at the time. I'm walking to the beauty supply and I get a call from one of the twins. And he's like, hey, sis, I'm here with your dad. First of all, triggering, like I don't have a father, haven't mm -hmm. been raised with one. Um, and he puts this man on the phone. And this man is like, hi, I'm your dad. We should meet one day. Your biological father? Yeah. This is him? Yeah. And when was this? Um, Before this, or after you went looking for him? After I went oh, looking okay, for okay. him, and I failed. Gotcha. And then I just randomly get a call on the way to the beauty supply. Get the hell out of here. And I was like, I was just focused on door knockers, and now I'm thinking about <laughs> like my identity and what's happening. But I was spooked. But I had this person's number. And then randomly one day, I had a day off. And I asked my best friend, I said, hey, would you be down if I called this person to, like, go with me? And they were like, yes. Yeah. So I called this person, and he was like, yeah, I'll meet up with you. And I was like, whoa. So blocks away from my job, I go to meet up with this person, and this man comes walking to me, and he says, Shannon, I know you're a rucker. His, name, his last name is Rucker. He says, because you have a rucker forehead. And I was like, wow. Mm. So it's it's all my life I've been looking for like biological identifiers and the first thing this man insults is my large forehead because he's like that's mine and I'm like <laughs> great fantastic and it also was wild because the Metesky person I had pictures of him because he was in prison so I had pictures of him but I didn't really look like him but I did look like his family which made me okay. really question and if he's a I, white guy and he's a white guy okay. so it, it made it plausible that I could be white and they're all dark haired white people okay. so I was like well dark haired Europeans sure. like you know I could totally this sure. is they have similar laugh lines as me like people who see the pictures they're like whoa we need to do a DNA test um also like I have feelings about those because of the situation and I feel like for theatrical like suspense I don't want to do one yet mm -hmm. um but yeah so I meet this man and I've been looking for biological identifiers and that's the first thing he says to me and he also like kind of looks like me and I definitely felt in my gut I was like I think this is the dude 
and he had his own story. He was like, yeah, same Mari stuff. Like your mom was like, I've been sleeping with both of these men and Shannon might be yours. And once the Metesky guy got put in prison, he told me the story. He was like, she came to me and was like, Shannon is yours because she's starting to get brown. Wow. That's wild, wild as hell. Yeah. That so. is the most incredible story I've heard in a, in a long time. And I, I'm st- I can't believe you and I've never spoken about this. I and mean, we it's talked long. a little bit. But well, sometimes like- I joke. Well, during the race crisis year, I used to, I thought I was white, right? And they're Jewish. So I was telling Kevin Kova, I was like, you know, I'm Jewish. And he was like, you can't <laughs> be Jewish. And I was like, I'm definitely Jewish. Or like the um, poet Aaron Samuel, he's black and Jewish. And he has this poem. He's like, I'm the blackest Jew you know. And I'm like, no, I am actually. <clears throat> it's pretty hilarious. But yeah, so that's one of the things. And then also back to the original question you asked of like my particular growing up. Because I had a foster parent and we weren't super connected and I didn't really have a father figure um, and so much of my life and career has been about finding my voice and uncovering my identity, the way that I move through adulthood is so interesting because everyone is worried about pleasing their parents. Sure. And I don't have parents to please. That's wild. So it gives me a crazy liberation And that happens for my queerness, for my ability to travel. Um, It also is very lonely and isolating, and that's the caveat. Like, there's nobody to, like, care about my safety on a regular day. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, like, I don't have to worry if mom is going to be disappointed or dad is going to be disappointed. Like, I've gotten through those phases. Like, she was super disappointed, like, my first ever poem and, you know. I feel like I've I've had this conversation a lot lately with a lot of people talking about like what their parents think and what they feel and and all that. And I keep going back to like my folks, I know occasionally listen to the show. Mm -hmm. I don't know how often or whatever, but I do Mm -hmm. know they have listened to the show. Mm -hmm. Um, They've also seen me do a solo show where I talked about like, you know, uh, being a bad person and doing hell of drugs and you know, whatever else. Right. So they're, they've, they're kind of, they're kind of seasoned. They, right, they understand right. what's happening. But there's sometimes where I say things and I go, ooh, we went into this thing. And I said this thing yeah. today. Like specifically with sexuality kind of stuff. Like I, right, it comes real. up and it's just like, we haven't had that conversation. And yeah. we may never need, I don't know, if, I don't think we need to. But like, yeah. is that a weird thing? And to imagine to be that untethered, yes, I think on a grass is greener type of feeling like, oh, it'd be so great to never have to worry about what your parents think about you. Blah, 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 blah. But yeah, it is kind of nice knowing that, like, hey, my, I need a hand with something, and you know. Yes, yeah, so I don't have that necessarily. Although I have um, a blessing of I've because of my lack of kind of a traditional family model, I have been able to build chosen family. Of course. And it took me a really long time to um, highly respect that and know that that is the most valuable and has been my saving grace. Um, I have uh, two godmothers that I've acquired throughout kind of growing up. And I have two godfathers that um, one I acquired while growing up and then one of them I acquired while being here kind of in my college journey. But people who have said, hey, I know you don't have a tradition of growing up, but you should still have somebody to talk to. So like those people have been angels in my life and I'm so grateful for them. So I kind of in a way do have a mom and dad in some sense, but it's still not the same. Like they're not my emergency contact because they are distant enough where they don't know what I'm allergic to and they don't Mm -hmm. know where I'm at most of the time. Um, But like, yeah, I'm not completely, completely abandoned to the wind. 
Um, but yeah, that liberation, it's like, it's so wild. It's so wild. And like conversations I can have with them because there is that bit of detachment. I didn't come from them. It makes me brutally honest and sure. like super real. And um, that's also kind of what they're there for too, is to like, understand and empathize and love me through those ugly like you would want your parent to of course. you know they're saying like hey you're flawed and you're you've had this wild thing but like you still deserve a family and that's so valuable um and then my homies have been like really the best family and i'm like okay cool and even going back i learned so many lessons being there with my siblings i actually wrote a solo show about it it's called uh, the saga of the return and it's all about what it means to go home and what does home mean, you know? Um, what does it mean to go backwards, to go forwards? And I felt like I did have to go backwards to kind of settle those feelings of neglect and abandonment and isolation and um, all of those kind of skeletons in my biological family. And now I get to go way forward and beyond. A mentor came to visit me when I first moved um, from Chicago to the Bay Area. And he was like, I wanted to come visit you here because you needed to come back here. Ever since I've known you, you've held on to some of like the hurt here and you need to be here. So I'm happy you're doing it. And I feel like because I went back and kind of settled some of those things, yeah, now I'm even more free. And now I'm like, great, okay, cool. Did some of the things I was most scared of. Now, how do I use that as motivation to tell the story about it and keep living my best life and um, and keep living by example um, with my siblings and keep trying to motivate them, even if it is from afar. And also learn that, so this is a thing about kind of traditional families. So many people live for their parents' dream or their sister's dream. Or, no doubt. You no know? Doubt. And, like, I want to be an example to say, live for you. Word. It's cool oh. to, like, serve and, like, show up. But, like, live for you. You got to. Because I still I'm, – I'm on that every day. Yeah. And I can't shake it. And it, it's really bugging me right now, which yeah. is, like, something I'm trying to deal with. And it's yeah. really getting to me. Is like, you think – because I'm 35 years old. Yeah. And for a time I was uh, – uh, uh, visibly successful in mm -hmm. the arts, right? Like I was doing very You're well. Classic, yeah. People knew who I was, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that was very easy to go. Hey, even if I'm not making big money, like I, I know that. Hey, look, I was in on the front page of the arts and entertainment section. Yeah. And hey, I was in. The, you know, and you kind of go. It's it's really easy to to justify it. But when you kind of slink away a little bit, and you mm -hmm. get a little bit older, and you go, man, everyone I know has kids and owns a house and has uh, nice cars and things like that, and you go, I. I'm, I'm losing it like you know yeah. and I just think my, I'm like my dad is constantly in my head just being like hey you know you don't want to have, not have any money or what are you going to do and all my friends it's just like you get into this and I'm still hung up on this like what do people think about it's not like what do people think about me but it's also like what do they think about me? it so matters um it really really matters like it's on your head I'm going to bring up something that uh is definitely my business to tell and um but I really I kind of like talking about it because okay. I've learned so many valuable lessons. So, but some people get uncomfortable because they're like, "Do you?" Anyways, I want to. So I had this crazy life experience this year um, where I got pregnant. You don't say. Wild, right? I love uh, that expression okay. on your face. See, it stumps people. People. No, feel I'm not stumped by it. I just was like, "That's that's right. not what I expected you to say." Right. Wild. Right. Um, but it was life changing because here I'm 30. <clears throat> I've done decent. And I had the choice that if I wanted to have a baby, I could have a baby. Sure. Some of my friends were like, you're the most responsible out of all of us. Like, you know, you're definitely ready if you want to. But it was a moment of choosing me. 
And it was a moment still of choosing my life. And because of my life experience and because of my biological experience, and I've also been a nanny and a caretaker like it's for so long, um, I know what it takes to be a parent. And I really had to ask myself, like, do I want to give that up right now? Like, do I want to do that work? And do I want to transition in that identity? And like, I straight up was like, no, not in 2018. Okay. And it was so dope. The power to true choose is amazing. That was not the adjective I was expecting. Man, right like that, I really like. I love the power to choose. That's why I was like, I'm gonna say it because, like, I want to talk about it. Like, it can be so liberating. Like, I I don't live in a time where I am forced to um, not live my life for me. Live sure. my, you know, I am in a really really liberatory moment where like I can choose me and choose me in the way that I feel like best fits me and for me that means not being a mom this year you know not that I don't ever want to be a mom but like it just doesn't fit into the calendar or my income choices yeah no doubt yeah do you but you want to be a mom maybe I don't know I thought I I was you always grow up for me right yeah I was like I'm always gonna I'll be a dad one day I'll be a dad one day and then this year specifically was the year I was like, this is never going to happen. And That's I'm cool real. with that. Like, yeah. and my, my partner doesn't want, doesn't want kids either. Yeah, I'm on the fence with it. I mean, I think it changes partner to partner, and I feel like I break up every year and a half. So, like, there's that. Oh, are uh, you on the 18-month the, the cycle? <laughs> Man, it feels I was like about, it. I was about that 18-month cycle for a long time it up until this one. It feels like yeah. I am a serial monogamist, and, like, I feel like it's one and then the other. and then, and then So, yeah, who knows, you know? But also, like... Being pregnant, so I'm queer, and, like, getting pregnant, like, men are included in my queerness, and it, it Wait really... Minute, really? Totally. Is that how that works? Damn I thought right. it was... I thought it was... Okay, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Jokes. I mean, pansexuality is the best. Do you, you consider know? yourself pansexual? I think so. So I uh, I actually really love... I feel like I digivolved. So when I first came out, <laughs> you ever digivolve? yes, I did. Anybody who ever knows Digimon, okay? Shout outs to the 90s. But, um... So I came out as bisexual when I was, like, 14, and I've lived my life as bisexual. But as I've grown up, like, I just – and as we as a society get larger vocabularies, you talked about non-binary folks. Yeah, last week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, That my interest does include a lot of non-binary and trans folks, too. And I was like, oh, my God, I just digivolved. I'm so pan now, and I think it's super hot. Um, So, yeah, like – even being queer and then, like, finding out I was pregnant, everyone, all my, like, queer friends was like, this is going to be so cute. You're going to be such a cute pregnant person, like, and what a beautiful story you get to tell. Mm-hmm. And it really made me think again, what kind of life do I want to live? It made me start thinking about what does my co-parenting life look like? What does my, like, like shared family life look like? Like, is, is like, what identities are in that? What It made it really practical, you know, so to answer your question of like, do I want to? I'm like, I maybe, depending on the circumstances. Mostly, I just want like the clo- No one can make it perfect, but I want good circumstances because I grew up in very shitty ones. No doubt. That, you know? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. That's okay. Um, so, does New York feel like home now? You mentioned I, home, yes. right? And chosen family, and that's a big thing, right? New York is home because, I mean, that's where my dog lives. I have a chihuahua. She's amazing. Of course you do. Um, so New York is home, and I have a really cute apartment in Bed-Stuy with a backyard, and I'm a tourist. So I'm, like, getting all of my interior design, like, loves and, and passions, you know, succeeded. <sighs> uh-huh. I'm living a good life. Uh-huh. Um, but it's home for right now. 
Um, I, when I first went to New York, I was like, I'll be there three to five years, I think. And then I'll consider what's next. But you went primarily to act, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but then I got this, I was leaving directly to go to Chicago from Chicago to go to New York. And then I got this job offer. So it diverted me for about a year and a half. And now I'm in New York and I still went for the goal to act, but I ended up trans getting my job transferred. So that's how I ended my first two years in New York under nonprofit. Um, but I just quit so I can specifically just do what I came there to do. Um, but when I first landed, I was like, oh, it's definitely going to be five. Like New York is just kind of swallows you like that. And it does take a minute to get settled. Um, so it's home for right now. And I'm like this again, another liberatory thing is the more cities I live in and the more places I travel to, it's really just a huge investigation of what are my preferences and what do I want out of life? And like, I am, I look at real estate and like, if I think about kids, I want them in larger real estate. I don't no, want to no. live in a box, of course, you know? Of and like, I really loved growing up next to eucalyptus and there's things that I like about other landscapes and ecosystems that I don't know if that means that New York will be my forever. Um, especially if I'm going to start a family or whatever, but else it depends. Cause if I get super rich and get to buy the condo of my dreams, then maybe New York is a reality, but also like maybe I want a swimming pool. I don't know yet. You don't know. And, and you don't have to know, but like yeah. when you look at it, do you vision, like, are you, are you hetero romantic? Like, could you imagine yourself in a nuclear family? Oh, totally. Yeah. For um, real? yeah. I mean, it's, I'm still going to be super gay. Well, yeah. I mean, Right. Yeah. But that's not that's not the question. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, d- I do think so. I think it got, I in a way I see myself in kind of all renditions and I just don't know. It could be kind of like a nuclear family. It could be a super blended family. Like mm-hmm. one of my ideas is like, you know, can I have three wives and two husbands and really just like <laughs> have all my village of children? I think in Utah you can, but not. Mm- I, well, I don't really have to get officially married, but they will no, still I'm be mine. You. you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> they're still going to be mine. Um, happy we talked about it. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. And it depends. Like, again, kind of in the shared family, um, uh, you know, child co-parent thing, like zip code is a real thing. Because, like, baby daddy uh, is Chicago. And I was living in New York. And then I was like, if this is a reality – that's a bi-coastal child we're already talking about. Oh, How is this practical? And then, yeah, like if I got a, if I got a woman in California, da, 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 what does that look like for family and landscape? And where's the central hub and how long? So it's putting everything in perspective. So I'm not tied to anything. I am a very practical person. And I'm like, what is practical for the dream and vision that I want for my lifestyle? And that's, an, again, kind of draws me back to like, I'm here for pilot season because first and foremost, I need my income and my dreams to match, sure. you know? So I'm trying to get on TV asexually. And then I'll, then the other things can manifest. So I'm like, come on, fame and fortune, you know? And so I have this one joke I really love. Um, I am so happy that there is like an influx of queer women being pregnant and having babies. There's Kaylani, sure. there is uh, Slick Woods, who's a model, and they are being beacons of the community, and I really want to be that. But you know what? I don't have a contract with Fenty Beauty and a contract with Atlantic, okay? Mm-hmm. When that happens, then I'll be as pregnant and gay as you want me to be, and we'll <laughs> see how it goes. <laughs> Was, is asexually a word you've used before? Um, yeah, I think I've just made it. And it's mine. I didn't know. I didn't know if that was the first because it, it, it fell out of your mouth like so, just so naturally. Oh yeah, like, asexually, okay, like right now. Asexually. 
Yeah. Uh, so tell me what, what you're working on right now in New York. In New York, um, I throw a queer variety show. It is called Queer Abstract. It goes on every third Friday at this bar called Star Bar. It is pretty much, um, it is based off of Salonathon. It is the Salonathon okay, model cool. um, applied to a different, you know, community. Um, I asked Jane Beachy of Salonathon and was like, hey, I want to start this thing. It's a lot like Salonathon. It literally is like taking from the model. How do you feel about it? And she just said the most beautiful big sister thing. She was like, I didn't make it up. Make it your own. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So like I and she came to see it. Like, I feel like I just like uh, and Kelly Kerwin saw it, who is another start uh, beginner of Salonathon. Um, so yeah, just it is like Salonathon. It hires, it has only queer POC performers. There are about eight performers per show. Um, it's free, and we have resident DJs. They're really awesome, and the community comes out for it. I got to work with somebody who knew Chicago, uh, knew New York really well, and knew the queer community really well, and just like plugged it. And we got the marketing really good, and it's super popular. Also, too, one of the reasons I made it. It's because I went to New York, and my first six months, especially leaving the trauma craziness of California, yeah. right, I went straight into party mode. And I was like, yeah. woo, New York City, I'm living my best life. And I was at all the gay parties. But I was like, wow, especially trying to be more sober and trying to kind of, like, not make alcoholism a thing for real. Right. I was, like, trying to nip it in the bud. I was like, I can't keep partying like this. I need something healthier. And there weren't that many healthy options for queer people in New York. There aren't that many healthy options because they are a huge economical, like, you know, pot of money. They love spending money. So, like, yeah, go make them spend money on alcohol. And then, like, there are cultural offerings for sure. But I think New York gets very elitist. So it's like, if Mm -hmm. you're not good enough to get the cultural offering, like, why are you here? And I was like, this is whack. So I felt like I was fulfilling a need where I wanted something that was more casual, also very mission-driven and very social justice-rooted to say, like, we care about uh, queer POCs and, like, the liberation of black and brown people. We launched on Trump's inauguration, so it was a perfect place to get us all together. And, like, one of my taglines was, like, our celebration is revolution, you know? Our community Mm -hmm. and what we are doing and our communion is revolution. Um, And it has really been a hub and a safe space for a lot of kind of, like, the everyman of New York who need who need something in between. So we get to see amazing artists and then we get to party after and it's not elitist and it's not full of fluff and it's free. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still has a bunch of cool people there and it's really dope. So that's the biggest thing I'm working on. That's dope. Yeah. It's really cool. I, I'm trying to find, all right, I'm not going to get too far into this, but like trying to find the right, trying to find the spaces that feel like home to people yeah. is really important. And trying to find spaces where you feel like home yeah. is really important. Yeah, I needed it. So I made it. And it's you tough. It, I find it a little tough here in Chicago because I've, I've always felt like a man without a country. Like mm. I, I pass. I'm obviously very masculine and whatever else mm-hmm. and can go to a sports bar and have no problem blending in. Right. right? I could go to Halstead and deal with that thing right. and be OK or whatever right. it is. But, um, you know, predominantly like all lily white spaces don't feel like home to mm-hmm. me. Obviously, being the one white dude in a entirely POC room, which is yep. very common in my yep. life. Uh, that never feels like home either. Yeah. So there's like this kind of man without a country thing. I don't know if, if again, they might just come to this lane thing. Like if you just don't feel like at home, create your own thing that feels like home. Create your own thing. And I think it's also less about um, 
creating your own thing, but stamping it. I don't know if that makes any sense. In like branding it, you mean? Um, in a way, like I feel like as much as Queer Abstract is a project that I did create, I specifically put myself as host, so I had somewhere to perform, right? Because right. our egos are large, mine is included. Real talk started. Yeah. I really need it exactly. Yeah. I needed a home to perform. I wanted New York to not know me just as the like pretty girl at the party, but that like knew I had a brain and that I was a boss, right? And this was the best way to do it. And I felt like I wanted to meet more people that were interested in like social justice things and also having fun. And I said, well, if I just say that I am that in front of the crowd, wonder if I can attract more people like me. And it was like the easiest way to make friends because like, yeah, people want to like relate to you, you know, and like, or everyone's looking for somebody to relate to. And it was like kind of my big, you know, cry for help was like, I want somebody to relate to me too. Is there anyone like me? And then like folks were like, yeah, I am like Mm -hmm. you. And then I made a bunch of friends. That's dope. Yeah. Good for you. Thanks. I so admire you. I really do. I really, really do. Thank you. I think you're so impressive. Uh, I want to, I really, we didn't, I never followed up with you about this. So you remember a few years ago, I texted you at 5 a.m. on my birthday Mm -hmm. because I was at Queen. Uh, I was misbehaving thoroughly, which is what you do at Queen. Yes. Um, So I was at Queen misbehaving thoroughly, hanging out with Shea Coulee. Yes. The drag queen, right? Oh my goodness. Uh, And we end up going back to this party and we're Mm -hmm. hanging out all night, whatever it was. And and I didn't know Shay as a queen. I just, because Shay was... uh, Dressed was yeah. in masculine gear, yeah. right? So, uh, and they're like, you should really get to know. You should really get. You know, Shay is the most amazing drag queen you'll ever. Blah, 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 yeah. blah. And I was like, I don't know. It just seems like you stole my friend's nickname, right? Because you, you right? So I remember texting. Yeah. I don't. I, don't re- I didn't remember it until this morning because I was getting yeah. ready. But I was like, I remember I sent Shannon a text like, "Someone's stealing your name in Chicago. What's up?" That's a funny. Well, I'm so flattered because Shay is, I mean, amazing. Right. And, and then brilliant. I saw Shay on Drag Race and was like, oh. and then you're like, I can't even. But we spell it different to be fair. Okay. So yes. where does that mine nickname- is S H A Y. Where does the nickname come from? Honestly, okay, <laughs> this is a. The cutest story. So I'm in, I want to say, maybe uh, fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And I had some really mean friends. Um, I hung out with this girl named Alexis. And I hung out with this girl named Brie Janae. And one day, we are at one of their houses, and we're having a slumber party. And this is one of, even though they were really mean friends, like, we were actually, like, getting along this time. And we were hanging out, having a slumber party, and we started freestyling. And they were like, we got Alexis, we got Brie Janae, and we got, and Shannon didn't work. So Shay came out. Yeah. And then it landed. And then for a while, like while I was like a young poet, um, everyone called me Lil Shay because I'm also short. Mm -hmm. Um, And like Bow Wow was popular and stuff. But like, yeah, just like Bow Wow, I was like, let's drop this real quick. I'm grown, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it just Shay, Shay. And then I really like nicknames, too. Um, So some people call me Shay Butter. Some people call me Shay Bob because I love the name Bob. I love the way it just, mm, you know, the consonants on your mouth. For real? For real. real. Okay. I love it. I don't know. Bob. (laughs) It just tickles me. It's so cute. Um, But yeah, I love nicknames. Um, And also, no, you kind of, you know, as a teacher, you always kind of got to figure out a relatable thing. Mm -hmm. So whether it be as a teacher, as a nanny, I'm like, just call me Shay. It's easier than Shannon. It's not as formal. Um, So people who really know me will be like, Shay, it's just more casual. 
You don't need to call me Shannon all the time. Matesky. Yeah. Shannon Matesky. It's so fun. And then, so, especially in Chicago, uh, some people use the wrong, like, vowel sound. And they'll be like, Shannon, Shannon, how are you doing, Shannon? And I'm Shannon. like, yeah, Shannon. And I'm like, oh, that sounds so disgusting. Call me Shay. That's how it is. So it helps. How hard do you, uh, do you find yourself, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to ask this in a way that's smart. Um, so, like, you, you just, I, I'm curious about this name thing, right? Yeah. So, Shannon Metesky, right? Mm-hmm. The white name. Yes. Uh, you oh, don't, you neither look nor sound like a Shannon Metesky, mm-hmm. right? So, but do you have, as an actor, do you have the ability to, like, on the phone, helicode switch into, like, mm. what Shannon Metesky would sound like if you had to? Uh, in a way, well, to, okay, to be super fair, I think no. Okay. I think that my tone, um, always reads as ethnic because I do do some voiceover work but like I feel like it's never kind of clean enough out of a black vernacular in a sense and I don't even know how to explain that but I think I sound heavier than a white girl voice I also think there's some optimism missing out of my voice and shit like that there's a carelessness that I just don't have weight on your shoulders yeah exactly (laughs) you know what I'm saying like no that's not my experience so no but um, I am educated in very, like, theater stuff. Right. So, like, I know how to, like, clean up my consonants and my vowels if necessary. I know how to, like, sharpen my words versus, like, let my tongue relax and talk how I want to talk. So um, I do know those techniques. So I can code switch in the sense of uh, class mm-hmm. more than I can race. That's fair. I can sound like a uh, more well-off person of color Fair enough. than a runaway girl. So being that you're transitioning into film, what kind of what kind of roles do you think you're – obviously you're going to go after roles that are good. That's the mm-hmm. easy answer, right? Well-developed characters that are smart and everything else. Yeah. But like is there a – do you feel like what – do you feel like there's a, a place for you in terms of in terms of acting, in terms of film, film being such a visual medium? Yeah. Um, no, to be honest. Uh, I do not. It's interesting because while I was in San Francisco, I had an agent that was uh, – did TV film, did everything. And in the Bay Area, it's very diverse. So there are mixed girls on ads everywhere. But uh, um, another thing that's in constant cultural conversation is like blackness is not on a monolith, but like a lot of media still thinks in monolithic ways. Of course. So even in such a liberal environment where I was seeing all these curly-haired mixed girls, like I'm still too light and not what a lot of people think of as a mixed girl so sometimes I don't qualify there um or like I'm not the traditional black girl and you know like I don't get a lot of like uh there's some roles that you can see casting directors want a brown girl for instance you brought up Ike's play right Mm -hmm. I was in hit the wall Ike's play uh years years ago Ike wrote the role that I had, Roberta, with me in mind because I wrote poetry. When the show went to Broadway, I was told that I wasn't brown enough to play the role because she was a civil rights activist in the 1960s, you know, or whatever. So you weren't brown enough to play the role that was written with you in mind? Exactly. Okay. Because people put blackness on a monolith and I didn't fit the idea of blackness. And then the person who did play it, like, just couldn't handle the language the way that I do. And then I was like, that's what you get. You know that's what, what I mean? Yeah. Like expand your brain. How so, was it by the way? I don't know. I never saw the oh, New you York didn't one. See it. Oh, I never okay, saw okay. it. I've only heard about it. And I was like, ha 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 ha. Should have hired me, but whatever. Um, 
Much love to her career. Okay, I'm not gonna mess up my uh, my karma. Okay, but uh, (laughs) overall, I do not think that there is a place for me. Mm -hmm. But that's why I'm so dedicated to staying in the business. I had someone tell me once they were like, "Why are you not doing poetry? Poetry changes the world." And like, why do you want to be in this superficial business of TV and da 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 da? And I'm like, because I do believe, and I've always believed that some little girl is gonna see me, and that's gonna change her world. And that's mm-hmm. all I really care about. That's all I care about. And, like, again, like, because of my life experience, I want to, like, have a role that reaches me to enough fame enough that during interviews I get to be myself and tell my story and advocate for the foster children of the world and do that type of work mm-hmm. and, like, do all these different things. But, like, as far as roles go, I kind of think about it like – I would love to be, you know, like I want to be the doctors on the funny comedy shows. I want to sure. be like, like more so I'm thinking of like types of shows. So like I want to do multi-cam comedy. I want to do like single cam comedy. I want to be just like somebody's cousin or somebody's best friend or like one of the doctors, one of the nurses, one yeah. of the lawyers, you know. And these these roles, like if, if they just have a job attached, why can't I be that person? Right? Yeah. Like. I can totally be the lawyer and talk like this and look like this. Um, I am happy that because I am getting older now that I'm 30, that, uh, like, I'm very urban. I like door knockers, big earrings. I look like an around-the-way girl. But because I'm getting older, I'm kind of getting out of being forced into that stereotype. Sure. And that's awesome, too, because now I don't have to only get cast as the -the around-the-way girl. Like, I am being looked at for more mature roles. Um, And that gives me, like you said, you know, breadth of character and all those things. Um, And then my agent here, she really has a beautiful faith in me, and I really love it. She's like, you are not a day player type. You're not a, like, single line, like, go die under the truck type. You are, like, a full series regular actor, and that's what we're aiming for. And I'm like, that's what I want, and that's what I want my career to be based on. Again, so I can reach the levels of fame to kind of talk my talk whenever I get opportunities to. That's so cool. And thanks for uh, thanks for coming in today and talking Thank your talk you. with me. Um, your story is is awesome. I love uh, hearing the things you have to say. I thanks. think this is gonna be a great episode. Um, do you have anything else you want to say before we get out of here? Anything you want to plug? Um, yes, actually. So a lot of people have just asked if I'm doing a show in Chicago. Um, follow me on Instagram, S-M-A-T-E-S-K-Y, because I'll probably promote a show um, at Reunion Shy, and uh, it'll be on, what is it, February? February 26th, Tuesday, February 26th. I don't know what the show is going to be yet, but it's going to be juicy and amazing, and I'm going to be co-hosting with Ashley Tribble, who's an amazing host cool, cool. in the city. So. Check it out. Awesome. Thanks for being in today. And uh, enjoy Chicago. Stay warm. Do the thing. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Everybody else, uh, we're here every single Monday, 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. Streaming around the world at Q4.org. You can also, of course, find us um, find us in the uh, podcast version. If you're listening today via Apple, I appreciate you throwing me a little five-star review, maybe a little maybe a little nice, uh, nice comment or a mean comment. Just make a comment because for some reason that matters to an algorithm. And uh, I hope you all are doing well. And that's about it. I'm saying and a lot. Let's get out of here. Let's do uh let's do this one. This is called a ghost. Q4 radio, QUE4.org, sixteen eighty AM in Chicago.